Welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web development and design with a little bit of zest. In this episode, we're going to talk all about secret things, environment variables, and how to handle your API keys correctly. Hello, my name is Amy Dutton, and I'm the Director of Design at Zeal. What's up, everybody? My name is James Q. Quick, and I'm a staff developer advocate at PlanetScale. Web development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compress. Today, we're joined by three fabulous sponsors. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs. Zeal is a software consultancy, and they are hiring. And Dato CMS is a performant headless CMS. More from each of these later in the show. So James, what have you been up to? Well, let's just say we spent a lot of money at Costco recently. So I'll save, I'll <laughs> save the small pick, the reasonable pick for people later. But we just got a new table set for the deck outside. And I finally hung up the lights that we also got from Costco. But I put like metal poles in the ground surrounding the deck and then drilled holes through them and then put like a carabiner clip in and then like ran the wire and ran the lights on the wire and the whole thing. So those turned out really well. Really excited about that. And then we have the new patio furniture and eventually I'm going to hang a TV out there and just make this like spend as much time out there as we possibly can. So we hosted Mother's Day yesterday, which was ended up being like a bigger thing than we thought eventually in a good way. So we had lots of family over. Through the baseball out in the yard. We played a little bit of spike ball. If you've ever seen spike ball, yes. had a blast. That was a ton of fun. That would be a good pick. Mm-hmm. Oh, spike ball is awesome. Mm-hmm. I should definitely add that. It's the most fun on the beach when you can dive mm-hmm. and like lay out. Mm-hmm. It's super fun. And I got my oil changed and got new tires today on the car. So we're about to make mm-hmm. another road trip this weekend for a couple of days. I'll be back in time to record, by the way. But we have new tires for our upcoming trip on the car. Awesome. That's a lot. So what have you been up to? Uh, happy Mother's Day, by the way. I forgot to... Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This year was fun. The kids all made a ton of homemade gifts, and they were all very excited to give them to me. I think my favorite thing is Adele, my middle daughter, she's six. She pronounces it mutter and fodder. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why. I think um, like in German, it's <laughs> something similar, I think. I feel, I feel like it is. I don't know. Anyways, she still <laughs> spells things very phonetically. So seeing mm-hmm. mutter spelled out phonetically was funny to me. Fun. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, and Isaac filled out this like Mad Lib thing from school. And at the bottom he wrote, P.S. I love dad too. <laughs> 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 I don't know. I, I guess that's a good thing. You can't, you can't leave the dads out on Mother's <laughs> <Right>? Day. <laughs> Takes two, I guess. So what have I been up to? You know, it's funny that you said you hung up your lights. I did not hang them up, but Henry hung up our lights on our patio mm. and they do look fantastic. He finished. I want to know who was first and you'll have to send me a picture so we can judge whose was better. Mm, probably him. Ours were more complicated. I can assure you of that. Um, he <laughs> did enough. it about three times. Did you have to do yours three times? <laughs> Do like I had to redo it or? Yeah, it, he did it one way. And, you know, just light. Sometimes you don't always come out even with on mm-hmm. a strand. And so then trying to figure out what to do with that tail. And then we have yep. an enclosed patio. So one of the walls is brick. And so trying to hang it on the other side with that brick was an interesting challenge. A feature. Because the command strip kept falling. So he finally figured out this really great way to make everything work and look good. But yeah, we did that. And then last week I was in Oregon all week. So we did a Mm -hmm. hackathon, all hands. It was 
so much fun, but I came back and I was just exhausted. So when I'm on the West Coast, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. My body clock doesn't line up with reality. So it's very strange when you feel like it's nine o'clock and it's still very light outside. But we had a great time. And shout out to Trevor. So he always tries to plan these really fun, unique team building things, like not cheesy team building, although this one was cheesy, pun intended. He brought in somebody to show us how to make charcuterie boards. So that was like our dinner for the evening. Yeah, it was very fun. So I'll have to include a picture because I was very proud of my board. It looks very professional. That's cool. I'd love to see a picture. Did I tell you that we did a wine and cheese tasting in Paris? Oh, no. I bet that was marvelous. Yeah, it was super fun. Like I probably drank more wine that week or those couple of days, honestly, (laughs) than I've ever drank in in my entire life. And we brought back a couple of bottles What kind of wine do you like? Uh, I do not have much experience. I usually go for a Malbec, but that's not really based on my knowledge of liking it over other stuff. It's just one mm-hmm. name that I tend to remember. So mm-hmm. maybe I'm going to start paying I, more attention to the wine that we drink. I just can't acquire a taste for it. I like like the sweetest, most dessert wine that you can possibly have. <laughs> and even then it tastes like flat sparkling grape juice. So I'm like, why not just drink sparkling, flat, sparkling grape juice? I <laughs> no, don't know what flat. to get you for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever yeah whatever you said flat. Oh, okay. expect a box at your door and uh oh my near future actually don't do that i'm not gonna say don't, that yeah. But. Yeah. <laughs> just okay. imagine how hilarious it would be if i did send it to you speaking of sending secret things Hilarity? and keeping them secret, <laughs> secret right this is that's what we are talking about i think oh, we're nailing my. the transitions i think we've yes. got that figured out that was good so secrets uh Which, you have actually introduced really your like whisper thing yes or Yeah, do that. That sounds so weird. So I was telling James pre-show that we like to play Jackbox games, and there's a Jackbox game called Gespionage. And if you get the little spy avatar, anytime it comes up on screen, it always goes, secrets, in this whisper voice. So anyways, (laughs) we'll see how funny it is. But I'm going to say secrets a lot. So get ready. Nice. I like it. Well... Secrets, where do you keep them? How do you keep them secure and out of hands of nefarious developers? It ends up being a much more complicated topic. I did a video of this on YouTube where I kind of did a high-level overview. So a lot of the same information that we'll talk about today, there is a video. I can grab you a link so you can include in the show notes on YouTube channel that I published recently. I think it's like five common mistakes people make with environment variables or something like that. And you'll kind of see how this escalates. But where this starts is usually with API key. So one of the first tutorials that people do in addition to like a to-do app is they do a weather app where you use a weather API and you pull the browser's time zone maybe, or maybe you just pull a hard-coded time zone or whatever. And you send a request over to the weather API and then it returns to you information about the temperature, rain forecast, et cetera. And you can display that on a page. And we actually have one of our challenges from the advent of JavaScript is one of those. So that is a very well-designed example from Amy that we put the JavaScript on in the advent of JavaScript challenges. So you can check that out at adventofjs.com. But that is one of the most common tutorials that you see people do. And what happens is you go to, uh, I think it's Open Weather API, and there's A few other ones that I'll mention in a minute. But if you're working with an API, usually you go to their website and then you register yourself and or an application specifically to then get an API key. And what the API key is, is every time you send a request to that API, 
the API basically wants to ignore all non-authenticated requests. And the authentication in this case comes from passing along that API key. So in JavaScript on the front end, you would make a fetch request to, I'm making up the URL, www.openweatherapi.com slash API slash V1 slash weather. And anyway, and you pass in some query parameters. So you make that request. And then oftentimes, well, you'll see this in different places. You can pass the API key as a query parameter in the actual URL string. Oftentimes you'll see it passed as some sort of bare token in the headers. Anyway, it doesn't really matter which you're passing along this API key. That way, when it comes to that API servers, it knows that this is coming from a real person that's registered themselves or more specifically a real application that has also been registered with that API. A couple of other fun examples. I've got videos of these as well. There's Pokemon API, there's Harry Potter, there's Star Wars. There's kind of all different kinds of fun stuff. So if you want to do something a little bit different than whether you can maybe find an API that's based on a movie that you enjoy or something like that. So the problem with that is at this point, early on in people's careers, and even later on with just not having the knowledge of what's wrong with this, people will write front-end JavaScript and inside of their front-end JavaScript, they will hard code that API key. So that means that in their fetch request, they're actually just putting that API key directly in the code. Then if you were to deploy that to something like Vercel, that API key would be in the source code for your application, for your front-end web application, no back-end stuff yet. And so when somebody goes to your website, it makes a weather request. It's authenticated because it's got the API key. And that's great. But the problem is anyone that then goes to that website can right-click and view source code. And inside of that, they would be able to see all of your JavaScript, including that API key. Now, for things like the weather API, it's not that big of a deal because they can go and query weather and it's on your behalf. So maybe they like spam it and you hit some sort of rate limit. But this gets a lot worse when it's something that you're working with that especially has the ability to edit data. So if you have some sort of API key that's working to give you full access to a database or your own backend APIs or something, and that gets into the hands of another person, they can grab that API key. They can go put it in their application, which is something that you don't want to have, especially when you get into APIs that are then paid. So if you're paying per month for an API and it has a certain amount of you can make a call a hundred thousand times a month and they go beyond that. That may wipe out your application because now your application has no ability to make additional requests because it's already been used. Or if they automatically scale you up, maybe instead of $15, now you've moved into the $50 a month tier because of the usage. So even if the API is free, a lot of them have limits on how many times you can ping the server. So mm-hmm. you might not be paying for it financially, but it might cut you off if you've hit your limit for that day. Yep. And then your application's kind of screwed, right? Like your application can't do, in this case, if it's a weather app, the number one thing that it's targeted to do. So that is mistake number one that people make is they attach that API key directly inside of front-end JavaScript. And one of the number one lessons of the day that influences all the things that we talk about is do not include any secret credentials in front-end JavaScript because they can go and inspect it and they can go get it. This includes also if you're using some sort of bundler tool or a minifier. With a minifier, they change variable names and they make your JavaScript code as small as possible. This makes it harder to find API keys, but you still absolutely can. Because if you think about minifying code, that key that's in there still has to be the exact same key. They can't change it to something shorter because it needs to have the actual value of that key. So number one mistake is actually putting that stuff into your code directly. 
Let me take a brief moment and talk about one of our sponsors. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs and we're actually hosting the compressed.fm site and my personal site, selfteach.me on Vercel. They also power more well-known sites like Twilio, but you can use them for e-commerce, travel, news, and marketing sites. You name it, they can host it. When I got ready to launch the compressed site, it was super easy. I pointed it to the GitHub repository and told it what folder my next.js project was in, and then it just worked. Ridiculous, right? But they also power over 30 plus Jamstack frameworks, including Create React App, Next, Nuxt, Vue, Ember, Svelte, Angular, Hugo, and Gatsby, just to name a few. But one of my favorite features is when you set up your account, you get your own dashboard. And here you can invite other team members to collaborate or view analytics. So as soon as I push the code to my GitHub repository, it deploys that code and I can watch the build and its entire process through their custom dashboard. So be sure to check out Vercel. I'll include a link in the show notes, but special thanks to Vercel for being a compressed.fm sponsor. So another mistake that some people will make is that they add the API key to their environmental variables file like they should. So that's thumbs up. But the downside is then they pull in or they reference that file with JavaScript. So when that still gets pulled in, it's exposing that key to the front end. So people can still go in and grab that information, even though it is in your environmental variables file. And that's a good section, I think, for us to introduce as well, this concept of environmental variables. So environment variables, mostly what people hear about is these are for secret credentials of some sort. It's also a very useful to have configuration properties in environmental variables, which means you can kind of change an environmental variable in a host and then redeploy it without having to push code. And now it's going to be configured to do whatever it is differently. While at the same time, primarily what you'll hear is about secret credentials. So locally in the JavaScript ecosystem, there's the .env, like spelled out, D-O-T-E-N-V package. And what that allows you to do is have exactly what you were saying, a literally .env file And then inside of that file, you can declare key value pair. So my API key equals the actual API key value. And then in your code, some frameworks do this a little bit differently. But just in regular Node, you would have access to that variable at process.env dot the key that you gave it in that dot env file. I did want to point out because it starts with a dot. If you open up Finder, if you're on a Mac or Windows Explorer, if you're on a PC, you will not see it listed in that directory. But if you open that folder within VS Code, then it should appear. The other thing that I wanted to point out is one of the reasons why it's called environmental variables is a lot of times these variables are dependent on your environment. So for example, one of the keys that I've used before is to say like site URL. And if I'm on my local machine, that might be localhost 3000. But if I'm on the production site, that environmental variable might equal compress.fm. Exactly. Yeah. So with these configuration type things that just change between different environments, you have the ability to customize it in that way. Another good example that I use all the time in the database world is when I'm testing my Discord bot locally, I've got a connection string to a developed branch. This is a unique thing of PlanetScale, but I've got a connection string to that specific branch, which is its own database. And then in production inside of Uh, Heroku is where that's hosted. It has another environment variable that's pointed to the actual main branch or the production database itself. Uh, So environment variables are, after you use them the first couple of times, you get used to them. But we'll talk about a few more things that can get a little tricky, including once you have that .env file and then you have your .env package and you've got that all set up, you're able to connect to your database or your API or whatever, and you've got that working. 
One of the most common mistakes, I've definitely done this myself multiple times, is to also check that .env file into your source code in GitHub, to your GitHub project. So even though you're trying to go the right path of adding these environment variables or these secret credentials to a .env file, once you check that into GitHub, that is now out there for everyone to see. And there's actually bots that look for .env files and secret credentials in all repos of GitHub constantly. And as soon as they find those credentials, they can go out and use them for all the different ways that we talked about before. Yeah, I think my favorite bot, though, is when I've accidentally done this. Uh, for Mailgun, actually, they turned off my API key automatically because they saw that I committed it. It was a great user experience, though, because they immediately emailed me and said, hey, you made a mistake. No big deal. Here's how to reactivate your key. Love that. And we had a similar example with PlanetScale that someone just posted on Twitter that they had published one of their connection strings for PlanetScale into a GitHub project. And GitHub messaged them and was like, hey, you, you probably didn't want to do this just so you know the secret credential is out there. And I think the way that works with GitHub is there, I'm not exactly sure, but there's some sort of formal integration that PlanetScale did with GitHub to let GitHub have the ability to search for those query strings. I don't know exactly what that integration looks like, but it's some sort of relationship and partnership that we did. I assume Mailgun did the same thing, but it's such a handy feature because no company wants their customers or their users to kind of get rate limited or get hacked or whatever it is. They want them to have a good experience. So it's kind of helping proactively protect against mistakes that you and I have both done it. We all do it. It happens, but it's something to keep an eye out. I would say, even if you're thinking, oh, I have a private repository, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to commit that file. That's not a great methodology because who knows if you ever need to make that public and getting rid of it is not just as easy as deleting the file and Mm -hmm. untracking those changes. There are still ways to get back into the history of Git and still extract that information. That's a good clarification too, because I think we should probably just settle on and recommend if that ever happens, don't try to obfuscate the one that you've already leaked, revoke that API key and generate a new one. So you're going to have to generate a new one and use that one from now on. It's a little bit of an inconvenience, especially if you have, you know, a couple of different environments set up that are using it, but that's just the best way going forward is just forget the old one and generate the new one. And a lot of your platforms that you register applications on, they have different UIs, but some of them have a UI where you generate the password or API key or whatever they call it. It only shows it to you once. You actually have to copy that and maintain it yourself. They won't show it to you again. They know what it is behind the scenes, but they won't show it to you. So if you forget that first one, Again, kind of pushing people in best practices, just go ahead and generate a new one. They won't even let you see the old one after you've generated it and then moved off of that page. Yeah, and I think now might be as good a time as any just to talk a little bit if you're working on a project with multiple developers and you do need to share those API keys, where to share them. So for the compressed FM site, for example, James and I collaborate on that project. So we're actually sharing all those values through 1Password. So far, that's been really good. Yeah, that was actually going to be one of the questions. I don't know if you saw that we got on Twitter. Uh, Cameron Thompson, developer Cam, our podcast MVP, had that question. So that's a really good suggestion. That has definitely worked well for us. I also throw stuff in my LastPass. So I use LastPass for all of my personal passwords. And what I will do is I'll just create a note that I can have in there. So for my different applications, for example, that I have, I'll have a note and I'll just copy in my environment variables. And then if I ever need them, I know they're in a safe space that I can go and get them. One other thing to recommend, by the way, 
or to clarify for how do you have a .env file locally but not check that in, make sure you add .env to your git ignore file. If that's new to you, you can go and kind of look up more details, but basically your .gitignore file is a file that you have. It's literally .gitignore that you specify the different files and the different paths, directories that you don't want to be checked into your project. A lot of these frameworks, when they generate an app for you, already have .env included, but one specific example, Next.js, for example, includes .env.local, but it doesn't have .env. Now you could get into preferences of what and how you name those .env files, but if you're doing Next.js, for example, you will have to specify that I'm using a .env file and make sure that that gets ignored. And sometimes the compressed FM site, for example, is a mono repo. So we're running the back end with Sanity and the front end in Next.js. And there's actually two different environmental files. There's one inside the back end folder and one inside the front end folder. So just be aware that your project might have two, depending on how it's set up. Yep. And VS Code can help with that. So your files that are ignored based on your .gitignore file, VS Code will kind of gray out inside of your editor. So assuming you're using VS Code or probably other editors have similar features, you can look at the file list and you can see which one of those is like slightly more grayed out to help you see that that thing actually is being ignored. We've talked about what not to do with your environment variables. We've talked about they can't be in any front end code at all, even if it's in an environment variable or secret credential specifically, even if it's in an environment variable in a host like for cell, you can't then use that inside or reference that inside of your front end code. So what do you actually do? What's the next step after you figured out, I want to take advantage of environment variables and I want to do this in the best way possible. This is where it starts to get more complicated because basically what you have to do is then proxy all of your requests through your own backend. So what that means is instead of making a request from front-end JavaScript to the open weather API directly, you will have to have your own backend server of some sort. We'll talk about a few options here in a second. And you will send a request to your own backend server. Your backend server can, and this is going to be an important quote here, your server can keep a secret. This is what we talked a lot about at Auth0 is what types of application can actually keep a secret. Front-end browser code cannot keep a secret because if you include it in there, as we've said, somebody could go and inspect it and they can see it. But if you reference an environment variable on your code that only runs on the server, it is safe. No one else can access it. You are safe there. So that is where you want to reference any secret credentials that you have. So we've got this complicated or it's a progression of complications where now instead of making the call directly, you're making a call to your own backend, which it references the API key, the secret credential, it will then make the request to the weather API as an example on your behalf and then return that data to the front end. So this means just for building a simple front end application, now you're having to learn about back end technologies. Now your deployment for that is now maybe it's more complicated if you're doing a full node server instead of just connecting a JavaScript file in a front end host. Now you're having to have somewhere that can do back end as well. One of the things that I like to point people to, and I think this is a great use case for people that are learning and then for people that just want to build quickly, is serverless functions. These are kind of individual files that you write and some amazing hosts out there will take that file and translate it into a function that runs on a server without you having to worry about any server configuration, which again then means that you can include an environment variable inside of it and it can actually keep that secret. It seems like this would solve, although it is a little bit of a complication, it seems like this would solve all the problems. So you've got, you're proxying all of your front end stuff to your own backend. You're using your API key securely there. 
to make the actual request on your behalf. The problem is, unless you go out of your way to protect this backend endpoint, this means that now anybody can make a call to your backend, and then your backend now has the access to use the actual API key. And this is where things, again, start to snowball and escalate even more, because now you've got your backend in addition to your front end, but then you have to add something to now protect your backend to make sure that only the correct people can call your backend and actually succeed, which then leads to this mindset of like, okay, well, that seems like the use case for me to have an API key that I could give to the front end to then know that the right person is calling me, but you can't have the API key in the front end. So now we get in this kind of like jumbled mess of how do we actually protect these backend endpoints so that people aren't calling them directly that aren't supposed to be able to. What's interesting is I'm not sure I realized that about the backend. I knew that I had to use the backend to access those environmental variables, but I didn't think about protecting the backend that anybody could still access that function. Yep. And so there are still some benefits. So let's say your API key may have the ability to perform writes to some sort of data, whatever it is, like add data, delete data, mutate data, whatever it is. Uh, PlanetScale is actually a good example, just a database. If it's a connection string, you have the ability to do whatever with that database. So you do have the benefit of abstracting away the functionality that the API key gives you versus the functionality that you expose to the user. So what I mean is, if my backend has an API key that has the ability to do complete CRUD operations, create, read, update, and delete, I don't necessarily have to expose that functionality to the front end. So the API endpoint that I allow to be called by anyone could be something like slash users with a get request, which means they only want to read a list of users, for example. Now, one, make sure you don't have passwords saved in your user accounts and all the things, best practices that come with that. But you do get this level of obfuscation, a little bit of a complicated word, abstraction, basically, to say, like, even though this API key has all the functionality to do all the things, the person that's calling me will only have the functionality that I have given them access to, not through any rules or anything, but just by the API endpoints that I expose to them. So if they're just calling a get request to slash users, that will work. But if they send a post request and I don't support that method, I'm at least protected against them damaging my data of some kind. But going back to the original point, this still gives them the ability to potentially spam your Git endpoint and they could send that request a hundred million times until going back to the conversation we had earlier. Now they've broken your API limits, which either costs you more money potentially, or it just shuts your application down because you now no longer have access to that end API that you're trying to get to. So one solution to this, there's some packages in Node. Brad Traversy had a video on this that I found was interesting because I had never implemented this specifically. But one thing that you can do is have packages that kind of do rate limiting on incoming requests. So I'm sure it's some sort of like in-memory thing where it keeps track of which IP addresses are making requests and how often. But you can configure some of these packages in Express, for example, to say like, hey, someone is only allowed to call me 10 times every minute or something like that, which then translates to, okay, if they can only call me 10 times every minute, that means I'm only calling the actual API 10 times a minute. So you can implement like what's considered rate limiting in your application directly. But really where the real evolution of this comes into play is with user authentication where people are actually logged into your app. So you only want to let people that are real users of your app do specific things based on who they are, just being a real user, and then what they should have access to. So this goes back to, I can't remember, 
I don't know if you have it handy, but the number of episodes that we did on authentication and authorization. Episode 57. And that was a pretty big deep dive, I think, into some of those topics. But this is ultimately where your real security comes into play, is knowing that the request is coming from a real user of your application and then knowing that that user has specific access to the thing that they're trying to access. And most commonly or very commonly today, you'll see, again, go listen to the episode for a bigger deep dive, but often you'll see the use of JSON web tokens or JWTs, which is basically a token that a user gets after they log in. And that JWT is basically proof that they logged into your application and it's proof of who they are. It may be a user ID, it may be an email, it may have a, a few other properties associated with that user. But what happens then is let's say the user logs in after they've logged in, they now have this JSON web token. It can be stored in a cookie. It could be stored in memory. It could be stored in local storage. There's different debates about that. And then every request now that they make to your backend API includes that JSON web token. Your backend can validate that thing. If it's not a valid token or if it is a token for a user that doesn't have permission to do this thing, or if there's no token at all, It'll just say no and not let that request go through. So if you combine the idea of like rate limiting your own API endpoints and then taking into account user authentication and authorization using something like a JSON web token, now you've gone through this full path of starting from just uh, API key and front end JavaScript where it's very simple to then having environment variables, not checking them to source code then moving those environment variables to the back end and then doing some level of protection around your own API endpoints to make sure that the right people are calling it and only the right people have access to make the calls that they're calling. I feel like it got complicated really quickly at the end, mm-hmm. which it just is, but I kind of want to address the fact that like it does get complicated, but most of the time that doesn't matter, especially when you're getting started. Yeah. Like to your point about not knowing... Mm. not thinking about anybody could just call my API. Well, it doesn't really matter because none of us have tons of users. But if you got to the point where someone actually wanted to hack you, they could. Let me take a brief moment and talk about the company that I work for, Zeal. They actually sponsor our podcast. They design custom applications and develop primarily in Rails and React. They're a remote first company even before the pandemic. They're based out of Southern Oregon, but I live outside of Nashville and we have team members across the entire country. But Zeal holds a special place in my heart because as I mentioned, I work there, but I can honestly say it's the best place that I've ever worked. And good news for you, they are hiring. So you could work with me. In particular, we are hiring engineers. So if that's you and you're looking for a change and want to work for an incredible company, go check out the careers page at codingzeal.com. I'll include a link in the description below. Special thanks to Zeal for being a Compressed FM sponsor. So I think if I ask some of my fuzzy questions, that might answer other people's questions. So if you had, say, a bear token, where would you put that? So bear token could be lots of things. Bear token could be the API key. So just starting from just an API key, make sure that your API key is never referenced in front-end JavaScript. It's only Mm -hmm. in JavaScript or whatever language you're using on a server or an environment that I'm doing air quotes here that can keep a secret, which would be your backend. So a node backend, I would be able to keep that secret. But you can also use JSON web tokens as bearer tokens. So from a front end, after a user has logged in, they would get an access token back from that login process. They could store it in a few different places, but then they would send that access token as part of each individual request to your own backend that can then be validated and checked and all the things to make sure that only that 
person with the right access is able to make that request successfully. Okay. So I'll make this question a little bit more maybe practical. If you look at Next.js, they have a, say, get server-side props. So that's only going to run on the server. So I could put an environmental variable call within that function because it's only going to run on the server, right? Yep, exactly. And this is where hybrid frameworks now complicate things because there's not as clear of a delineation between front end and back end. So Mm -hmm. when I say something like only reference your environment variables on an environment that can keep a server, now that idea is getting mixed because Mm -hmm. Next.js hosted on Vercel has serverless functions. They have get server side props. They have get static props. And then they have other things like get initial props. Get initial props runs on both the client and or the server. So it becomes more and more important to understand where each piece of code that you're writing is run for in Next.js's case in both get server side props and get static props. Both of those are run on the server. So you can, in that case, reference your environment variables in addition to your traditional API endpoints for people if they've used Next.js or similar frameworks like Nuxt.js and SvelteKit where you have a specific file. It is then basically translated to a serverless function endpoint and inside of there you can reference your environment variables as well that makes a lot more sense it's a tough mix i think that's one of the big learnings in what's becoming modern web development is this blending of front end and back end and this creativity of how and when we do which and it's really important to know which is which and which is being Mm -hmm. run at what time so that you can make informed decisions about how you do things like handle or reference your secret credentials and environment variables Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes me feel a little bit better about some of my code because I know that I've referenced environmental variables, but it's either been within the get server side props or get static props, which is going to generate a static file. So to your point, even though it looks like it's front end JavaScript, it's running on the server side. So it's protecting that API key. Yep. Can I actually call out? There's another good example yeah. that I think would be useful for people that really tripped me up for several years. And it's basically the same scenario with both Firebase and Superbase. You and I are both big fans of what the team at Superbase is doing. And if you've ever worked with Superbase or Firebase, you know that you get like a JavaScript SDK and you use some sort of what seems like a secret API key to configure that thing, but it lives only in front-end JavaScript. And in my mind, I'm like, how in the world is this feasible? Why does this work? So one, that is a public API key. There are public API keys and there are private API keys. A public API key, as it's implied, can be public. It doesn't really matter if that API key gets out. So with Firebase or Superbase, I create an application. I get a public API key. I create a front-end project with just front-end JavaScript. I add that API key directly in the code, and that's totally fine with a caveat. (laughs) And the caveat is that you use their backend to do authentication and authorization rules. So I mentioned earlier that you only want to have the right people be able to do the right thing. And with that front end public API key with Firebase or Superbase, I can't remember how it's configured by default. I think for both it's configured by default that that API key will give complete access to do whatever CRUD functionality with your data. So it can write data, delete data, et cetera. The thing is that in each of those platforms, they do it differently. You then have to configure rules that define who should be able to access what, and you should require that these things that could be detrimental to your application, deleting data or deleting the wrong data, if it's not your, like if I try to delete your data, et cetera, 
defining those rules that say, hey, a user has to be logged in and to delete a record, it has to be a record that they own. Each of those platforms have their own way to configure those rules and their set of rules basically replaces you having to do all of that backend work that we just talked about. So I talked about how big of a hassle and how big it escalates where you have to create your own backend then protect your API endpoints and do authentication and all that stuff. Basically, Firebase and Superbase take care of that for you. And behind the scenes, what is happening is after user authenticates, there's a JSON web token, which then gets sent to their backend. And they do the same checks that I'm saying that we would have to do to protect our endpoints. So in my mind, that's why that's one of the big reasons that Firebase and Superbase are so popular with developers, because you can create a fully protected full stack CRUD application and never have to write any of that backend code yourself. It seems like some of these services would also check to see which URL you're coming from. Because I know a lot of times I have to enter in on the back end what my development server is and what my production server URL is. Yep. So you can do checks to see where the incoming request is coming from. I think it's relatively easy to spoof that. Okay. Um, like I think you can tamper with that request. I'm not exactly sure if that changes with something like HTTPS. I'm not sure if that changes or not, but that at some level that can potentially be tampered with. Um, But that is a good thing. You can have an allow list of which domains you are allowing requests from. Well, that was a very good summary. And I feel like I learned a lot in the process. So I think I started off thinking, oh, no, I've messed up some things. (laughs) Only to come out on the other side and realize it wasn't so bad after all. But yeah, this will be a good one for me to (laughs) reference. And now it's time to take a second to talk about one of our sponsors, which is Dato CMS. Dato CMS is a complete and performant headless CMS built to offer the best developer experience and user friendliness in the market. One of the things I think is really interesting and neat on their website is if you hover on their wide Dato CMS tab in the nav bar, you see sections for developers, digital markers, and content creators. So it's got the entire audience covered. They also provide a rich CDN-powered GraphQL API with real-time updates, which is really neat. So all of you who love working with GraphQL and are looking for something that has real-time updates, this is really, really cool. They also provide a super flexible way to handle dynamic layouts and structured content and then have best in-class image and video support with progressive image loading out of the box. So if you're looking for a headless CMS that can help represent every member of your team, make sure to check out Dato CMS. So the next section of the podcast is our grab bag question section. And this is where we take questions from friends and strangers on the internet. So I believe we have a few So we had one from developer Cam earlier that we addressed, Mm -hmm. and that was he asked about the best way to share environment variables across different machines. So you did a great job of covering that one. And then in Discord, Brian Morrison asked about the pros and cons of system environment variables versus a KMS. I had to ask what a KMS was, and I guessed key management system, which he confirmed was true. I don't know a lot about key management systems, so take all this with a grain of salt. And if anyone does know more about these, feel free to comment on in Discord or share on Twitter or whatever with more specifics. But it's kind of a centralized way to maintain secret credentials, and somehow your application will have access to grab credentials from that centralized store and then use them in their applications. And I kind of think the way this would happen is your application will have some sort of API key to be able to call this API, which then gives the secret credentials to the application to do its job for all the things that we just talked about. One of the advantages of that is you have those in one place. So you have 
potentially other people for better or for worse have access to update those environment variables there. You also then potentially have the ability to hot reload your environment variables without restarting your server. So if I were to have my own application and I wanted to change an environment variable inside of the host that it's in, I would probably have to change the environment variable and then restart my application. But if I use like a centralized key management system, we did this at FedEx, you can potentially write an endpoint in your own code in your backend to say, go and refetch all the environmental variables. So that means that it can go and refetch all the environmental variables on demand or hot reload them and then not have to fully restart your server. So I think those are some of the benefits that come along with a KMS, a key management system. Not something I have a ton of experience with. So if anybody, like I said, has any additional information or opinions, feel free to share those with us on Twitter or Discord or wherever works for you. The next section of the show is our picks and plugs section where we pick something that we like and plug something generally that we've been working on. So James, do you have any picks and plugs for us? Yes. I'll give you one guess as to where my pick is from. Well, you already told us it's from Costco. (laughs) Oh, well, for people who are paying attention, yes, it's from Costco. So we spend a lot of time at Costco. It's like multiple times a week. It's like if we're bored, we're like, let's go to Costco. Do you go for the samples? I actually don't really get that many samples, to be honest. And they didn't do them for so long because of COVID. Mm. Anyway, (laughs) they've had these shoes at Costco for, I mean, it's probably been like six or eight months. And they're like, they're Skechers. And Skechers, I just associate with like either kids or like really old like men with like not nice (laughs) shoes. And I just pulled it off to show show Amy. um, For anybody listening, they almost look like all birds. Uh, A little bit. Yeah, they're similar. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like as far as Skechers go, these are pretty modern. I feel like they look pretty good. Yes, they do. And they're 25 bucks. And like I'm wearing them with like gym shorts today. And I feel like they're nicer than my running shoes. So they're like a little step up from that. But they're still comfortable like a tennis shoe. So I've walked past it. I mean, I've looked at them 15 times, like stood and looked at them 15 trips out of the last 20 because they're so cheap. And I'm like, that would just it'd be a nice Nice pair of shoes to just add, especially for that cost. So I bought them. I've been wearing them for a couple of days. They're pretty comfortable, as comfortable as most things that I have. They look, you know, good enough with gym shorts and like just shorts in general. And then I could wear them with a couple of pairs of pants too. So 25 bucks at Costco is hard to argue with. Comfortable enough, look good enough. And hopefully I don't look too much like an old man with my new Skechers shoes from Costco. No, you look like you could dress them up or dress them down, depending on what mm-hmm. you're wearing. Yeah. You heard it here first. Approved mm-hmm. from Amy. Now, are you and Jess wearing matching Skechers shoes? <laughs> Jess does not. No, the, Jess does not have these men's Skechers shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you like a women's peacoat. So <laughs> that's true. There, there's yeah. It's, and it's women's a fair leggings. You never know. Let's talk about that. <laughs> I do have. Do we need to? We can revisit that. I haven't worn them in a while. We haven't been to yoga in a few weeks, but mm. I do enjoy the leggings that I. have. <laughs> you just have so many more options, and it makes true. me very jealous. True. <sighs> Those are the struggles that I have in life. Here's hot takes on clothing (laughs) with Mm -hmm. Amy. I don't feel like men have much room to complain because I feel like your styles are far more evergreen. Can't think of a good word. Evergreen. Like, like, yeah, like they start new every time. Well, like you have a polo. Polos were popular 20 years ago. You could wear a polo today. Everybody's happy with a polo. It's just like a good shirt. Whereas like women's fashion changes constantly and it's a lot harder to keep up with. It may change more, but I still wish I had more options. <laughs> and I almost feel like it could be one of the like 
chicken before the egg type things, uh, right? Like women could be, I'm not generalizing women, so don't take it that way. <laughs> Maybe women have historically purchased more different kind of new clothes than men have. Maybe they're more excited to try. Again, I don't, I don't believe that. I just, it could be a chicken before that. Anyway. Uh-huh. Um, I see what you're saying. We have more options. options. It might change more, but we have more options. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I want the options. Mm. <laughs> that's where I stand. Uh, that's funny. I just want a, a good timeless look that doesn't make me look like I am an old lady. It's definitely a polo. You can definitely pull off a polo. Yes. <laughs> you just need a pair of Skechers shoes mm-hmm. and you'll be good. But I mean like even our jeans. Yeah. Skinny jeans, boot jeans, flare jeans, straight jeans. And now jeans. they're coming back with flare. And I know, which it, is very uh, weird. I don't like which it. It's not, good, it's not I a good look, it, I don't think. I think I told you this, but I saw an article, I think in the Wall Street Journal that said, you know, you're a millennial if you're still wearing skinny jeans and socks and tennis shoes, like ankle socks, ankle socks and tennis shoes. And I was like, well, I am a millennial. I didn't need you to tell me my wardrobe for that. (laughs) But it did make me question some of my choices. (laughs) Yeah, I just go out there and do me. That's that's all I can worry (laughs) about. I can't. I can't keep up with all the other Do opinions, you? I don't think. Okay. Well, right. you heard it here first. James gave me permission to wear right. my skinny jeans. <laughs> what is it? Skinnies and tinnies. <laughs> Skinnies and tinnies. That's right. Yes. It's a good look. Good. All right. For my plug, I'm going to pick a specific video on YouTube, and it's 10 things JavaScript developers have stopped doing. I had fun with this one. It actually started from a post on Twitter that I had of just like, what's something in JavaScript that you don't do anymore? And I thought it was a pretty interesting take on like, some of it's just modern syntax, some of it spoiler alert number one is like using typescript instead of javascript that's becoming more and more popular for many people mm-hmm. so it was a fun video to kind of look at like what has changed in javascript just based on feedback from twitter so i had fun doing that one it's on uh, youtube one that i published recently so go and check that out awesome amy do you have your picks and plugs i do i am going to pick the james clear newsletter not to be confused with james quick but this is james clear <laughs> And he wrote the book Atomic Habits. If you've heard of that, it's like a bestseller. But he has a newsletter called the 321 Newsletter. And it's just really simple. It has three ideas from him every week, two quotes, and then one question. And I always feel like they're very thought-provoking. It's a short newsletter, but it's like all of his quotes are usually spot on. And the question really makes me search my soul. (laughs) Search your soul. Yeah, I know. Like it. Maybe not that much but anyways it is a good question so anyways check it out james clear 321 newsletter you can sign up for free and then for my pick i'm gonna kind of go back in the archives i say archives because i plugged it for a while and i stopped plugging it but i do have a javascript keystone tailwind course on scott talinsky's platform level up tutorial so go check it out actually i'm planning on speaking at prisma day in june and there's a good chance that i'll be talking about keystone so go to his website. All right. So that is going to wrap up this episode on secret credentials, API keys, and what to do with them. (laughs) Secrets. That's right. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any additional questions, uh, it's a little bit of a tricky topic. Feel free, like I said, to reach out in discord, learnbuildteach.com or on Twitter for Amy and or I. In the next episode, Amy is going to tell us all about storybook. So I'm excited to learn from her. I know a little bit about it, but not very much. So I'm looking forward to that episode. In the meantime, that's all we got.